This is a recording from the University of Leicester. Prison is structurally violent. As a matter of public policy and practice, it suppresses fundamental human needs. Because of the nature of prisons, they're vulnerable to political predation, populist politics, and occasionally you will get a rogue regime. Uh, most of you are too young to remember, but maybe 10, 15 years ago, there was a big expose on Wormwood Scrubs. And it turns out the regime had gone horribly wrong for about a decade. You literally have 40 staff running around, raping prisoners, carrying out mock executions. Everybody knew this. Area knew it. Headquarters knew it. No one did a damn thing. It's a closed world, and it's very, very difficult to defend yourself if you're in that closed world. Uh, this is version two of, of my speech. <laughs> I, I, I put together a wonderful presentation. Trust me, it was really good. I binned it at 2 o'clock this morning and rewrote it, such as it is. Um, after listening to Grayling's speech yesterday at the Tory party conference, uh, we have a Minister of Justice who mocked the idea of teaching human rights to kids in schools. And I, I, I don't know where to go. I did warn Twitter I might get sweary. And, and I pretty much did. I had some horrible things to say about him, and to be honest, he deserves it. Uh, he crystallized for me, there were two versions of this. There was the soft, fluffy version, and then there was the balls-out version, and that's the one I'm going with. This populist predation from populist politicians, rogue regimes, makes prisoners very, very vulnerable. There are only so many avenues the powerless have in which to defend themselves. It used to be it still is to some extent. I'm not going to over, overstate any point here. It used to be the law, at least from around the 1960s, was a help to prisoners. Before that, if the governor punched you in the face, you had to get his permission to write to your lawyers to sue him. And the courts finally decided that this was ridiculous. Prisoners should have access to the courts. Because what we've now seen is the withdrawal of legal aid for many what the ministry call petty internal housekeeping matters. And we had Grayling yesterday saying, no more will prisoners get legal aid to sue just to go to another prison. No, the legal aid board has never given a prisoner legal aid just because he wants to move down the road. It's absurd. But if you're in London and your dying mother's in Edinburgh and the prison service refused to transfer you, I don't think it's unreasonable you should be able to go to the courts to challenge a decision like that, which is fairly fundamental and significant. Legal aid for such things has been withdrawn. So one of the protections prisoners had has gone or been seriously weakened. The second defense prisoners had against being preyed upon was actually political morality. Michael Howard, again, most of you are too young to remember Michael Howard, a Tory Home Secretary back in the mid-90s, thoroughly horrible human being. I chased him around the prison, wanted to punch his face in. He, he can move. Um, he really can. Uh, 
<laughs> even he didn't do what Jack Straw has done or what Grayling has done. There seemed to be an innate political morality that, hang on, these are the legitimate limits upon punishment, which, of course, is a debate we never have. What are the legitimate boundaries on punishment? You scour the Prison Act or the prison rules, you won't actually find the word punishment. Took me by surprise. I checked the other day just to make sure. Even in internal disciplinary processes, you're never given a punishment. You're given an award, which sounds really good, but I've got a chest full of those medals, and it's not as good as it sounds. It's a debate that's never had. What prison should be like day by day by day. And because that debate's never been had, Grayling can come along and interfere with the minutiae of prison life. Most ministers didn't do that. Howard did. And Grayling does. Jack Straw gave a, a, a week ago, but the prison service is actually quite adept at ignoring ministers, unless they're very forceful. Unfortunately, Grayling's very forceful. So there is now no political morality, and we're in an election year. You're going to get the rhetoric ramping up week by week across the dispatch box who can be most horrible to prisoners. That's going to be the reality of it. It always has been coming up to election years. So without the law as a protective mechanism, without political morality as a protective mechanism, the vulnerabilities of prisoners have increased massively. A third barrier to predation on prisoners by a populist society was prison reform groups, most of whom have a working relationship with the Ministry of Justice. The Howard League had a particularly close relationship on the issue of uh, deaths in custody and used to get regular briefings and, and meetings with civil servants. All these have ended. Grayling has quite happily put the boot into the Howard League in particular in, in the press, calling them, I think, left-wing conspiracy theorists or whatever. You know, he just dismisses them. The power of the penal reform lobby has never been so weak. The final barrier, the final defensive mechanism that prisoners have against being preyed upon, is revolt. Yeah, I still live like that. <laughs> Don't nod your head, sweetheart. <laughs> revolt. The Control Review Committee, Home Office Committee, back in 1984, uh, made up of academics, stated quite boldly, prisons run with the cooperation of the prisoners. That's without a shadow of a doubt. You might have 100 men on a wing, you might have five staff. At any particular moment in time, prisoners have the physical dominance. They don't exert it. But there was that background recognition that there's only so much pressure you can put on people before they will bite you back. So all these defenses, I say, are now gone. The law doesn't protect prisoners. Political morality doesn't put boundaries on what ministers do. The penal reform lobby has been sidelined completely. The question is, where does revolt and what used to be called reform through riot, is that 
the only avenue prisoners have left. And privately, as well as publicly, the reports I get of disturbances. The prison service doesn't do riots, ever. Ask the Ministry of Justice if there's ever been a riot, and they'll say no. There are disturbances, or there are acts of concerted indiscipline, but you never get a riot in prison. They just hate the word. Reform through riot probably reached its peak with Strange Ways, 1990, April, a whole month, the longest, most destructive riot in British penal history. At the same time, 25 other prisons had disturbances, um, one of which was Bristol. Uh, I believe that was the inside of Bristol A-Wing. Uh, after we'd finished with it. I was in the Bristol riot. I got acquitted, so I can quite happily say so now. As a response to that, no, a a, a brief detail. Bristol was a 600-man prison, local prison. When the disturbance began, the staff could only muster one single riot squad made up of 12 staff who basically looked in the wing, said, bugger that, and went home for two. Obviously, a riot squad of 12 cannot contain a 600-man rioting prison. The resources the prison service had back in those days were lousy. They weren't organized. They weren't trained well. However, since that time, nearly every member of staff is trained in uh, riot control or control and restraint at various levels. Uh, as, as the prison service call it, control and restraint. Sounds very nice. Trust me, it hurts like hell. So you now have the staff being trained and equipped. At the same time, there were shifts in architecture. You used to be able to see a great long open wing. That might be 100, 150 hours long. Now you won't. When they rebuilt it, you didn't have flimsy railings on the landings. It's, they're built like tanks now. You're not going to be able to knock the railings off, use them as weapons, set fire to them, and so on. And there'll be a sterile area, a set of gates and bars, smack down the middle of the wing. Part of the prison service's current strategy is not to allow a riot to burn out, which was historically what they did. Because once you smashed everything, there's nothing else to do. You just hand yourself in and surrender. Now, with the new architecture, where you have sterile areas where staff can retreat to, re-equip, and retake their prison, changes in staff, staffing training, I say reform through riot is no longer possible. You can still have small disturbances, but because wings are now, even in, in the radial prisons, the center is cut off, is physically separated from the wings. You can have a riot on one wing, nothing else is going to, it's not going to spread to the rest of the neck. That's given the prison service a lot of confidence that they can actually screw prisoners over without that background threat of revolt from desperate people. So now we're in a situation where the law isn't protecting prisoners, political morality isn't protecting prisoners, the prison reform groups can't protect prisoners, and prisoners themselves can't use violence constructively, if if there is such a thing, 
in order to defend themselves. That's a very, very desperate situation. Anybody who knows anything about theories of human needs knows that if you suppress people's fundamental human needs, they will always struggle to fulfill them. Always. It's innate. If people don't have legitimate avenues by which to struggle and fulfill their human needs, they will look for illegitimate avenues. But riot being the ultimate illegitimate avenue appears to have been closed off. 15 minutes yet? Excellent, thanks. <laughs> I'm trying to time this right. So what are the options for prisoners? 85,000 people just sitting, waiting to see what the next ministerial kicking is going to be or what new stupidity the prison service is going to unleash all behind closed walls where we don't see it. I say there are two options and I'm going to lay them both out. The first one is to modify riot tactics by prisoners to nullify the prison service strategy. Prison service strategy is the riot kicks off, staff withdraws to a sterile area. They do not abandon the prison. They just withdraw to the sterile areas, secure areas, kit up, and storm back in and retake the prison. Prisoners, being largely disorganized, don't believe riots are organized. They never are. They're spontaneous almost. Uh, they grow out of nowhere. Very odd animals, not controllable. <coughs> or even if you start as a controlled event, it tends to be like fire. It just tends to spiral out of control. But if prisoners rioted and simultaneously took a staff hostage, that would nullify the prison services strategy of counterattack. They wouldn't dare do it. There have been prison staff taken hostage historically, but it tends to be two prisoners or one prisoner taking a member of staff hostage. They tend to be isolated individual events, and then they're isolated within the prison, and as it was happened at Peterhead, if the prison service can't cope with it, they call for the SAS, I kid you not, who blow in the walls and save the, the screw. But if there's a full-scale riot going on at the same time, and you've got a member of prison staff sitting in the middle of that, that's not possible. That would be an escalation, a horrible escalation of prison violence. Staff traditionally don't get taken hostage in that way in this country. There's a reason for it, and that is the consequences are rather severe, not just the official ones, but the unofficial ones. But desperate people can do desperate things. So, but there is a counter-strategy. I've never spoken to my peers, or what were my peers, about it, just in case someone thought this is a good idea. I don't think it's a way forward. Ratcheting up new forms of violence might give you a temporary satisfaction or a temporary victory but there will always be consequences and that level of violence will beget more violence. Who knows where that could circle to? You'll have staff carrying pepper spray one minute and who knows, we'll have snipers on the roof the next. It's not an, an avenue I'd either advocate or support, but I do note it is an option. 
As I say, desperate people do desperate things. Well, that's what a wing looks like before the riot. I did a, a personal journey from, obviously, violence to non-violence. And that shaped my view of how conflict in prisons should be utilized and opened my eyes to the ways in which prisoners can assert themselves. I haven't yet, but can assert themselves. Prison service is really good at dealing with violence. It just needs more violence. And you know, at the end of the day, they're the state. They've got the biggest sticks. And that's how it goes. But the prison service doesn't have a strategy for dealing with non-violent direct action. It just doesn't have one because it hasn't happened often enough or effectively enough for them to be bothered to come up with responses. And when you think, you know, it might be just this poor little guy sitting in his dungeon somewhere, Dartmoor, Franklin, whatever, what could that person actually do? And then you think, well, you know, some skinny guy in a loincloth stood there and looked the British Empire in the eye. And the British Empire blinked. The British Empire, the largest, most powerful empire that history has seen, got faced down by Gandhi. There's a reason for that. Well, there are many reasons for it. Active nonviolence, and I say active nonviolence because people think nonviolence is very passive and accepting. It really isn't. It really isn't. Active nonviolence is, is like trying to have a punch up with a flyweight boxer. You know, he's here, he's there, he's bloody everywhere. Very difficult to deal with. Prisoners have never developed their campaigns. or their issues, or any organizational mechanism within themselves to be able to develop and use active nonviolence. But it was so easy to do in an institution which is based solely or ultimately on power, and it's not very well hidden power, it's there in your face like that. It can't be dealt with unless prisoners organize. And it's my argument here today that given the evisceration of the prison reform lobby, given the indifference and hostility of politicians and the downright ignorance, Grayling actually used the words holiday camp. Um, no one who's ever, no one who's never been behind a locked door should be allowed to say that, certainly not within my reach. Um, I was actually sitting there with my laser pointer playing it across my telly like a sniper scope while he was speaking. Uh, it really bugs me greatly. Um, sorry. The only hope left for prison reform lies with prisoners. No one else is pushing for it. 
every other mechanism is actively moving against penal reform. If anything, prisons are getting more horrible by the day. There's no particular evidence that crappy regimes lead to lower crime rates. There just isn't. This is just malevolence. It's political malevolence and petty vote grabbing. So with no one else caring about prison reform or having any power to influence prison reform, it has to be down to prisoners who are not on the firmest moral foundation. I might be an ex-con, but I'm not an idiot. Nevertheless, as a constituency, 85,000 prisoners, what are we, 30, 40,000 prison staff, they keep cutting them. I've lost track. Prisoners could easily, easily control prisons or grind them to a halt. That's why I called the talk Breaking the Castle Machine. Prisons run with the cooperation of the prisoners. They've got to get out of bed. They've got to go to work. They've got to go cook the food. They've got to serve the food. They've got to clean. Now, if you're a subtle thinker or a devious git, you can exercise nonviolence without even breaking the prison rules. Obviously, you can't work in the kitchen if you've got an upset stomach. So, you know, everybody who's, who's working in the kitchen should just report sick one morning. Say, oh, I've got dodgy stomachs, terribly sorry. In those circumstances, there is a contingency plan, and that's essentially the credit card and KFC. And the governor can't keep that up for long. His budget just can't stand it. By having a great familiarity with the prison rules and regulations, and prison is such a bureaucracy, it's unbelievable. But if you understand it, you can tweak it. You can mess with it. You can grind it down. There's a, there's a prison rule, prison rule number 11. Uh, the, the governor's applications. Every prisoner has, has the right to see a governor, to, see, to make an application see the governor. Now, under the disciplinary code, it's an offense to give, sell, or lend anything to any other prisoner. So when they used to annoy me in some petty way, I start thinking, okay, well, this works both ways. I start making governor's applications. I want to give my next-door neighbor a cigarette paper. I want to borrow a tea bag from the guy across the way. You know, you keep that up for a couple of weeks, some governor's going to turn up and listen to this crap. And you can't, you can't just not do it. It's the rules. You've got to get permission from the governor to do that. The fact that these things are ignored, because they're nonsense, um, is neither here nor there. They can be enforced. The rule book works both ways. And prisoners can deploy it. I was particularly good at deploying it, but prisoners could deploy it to grind. It's like a work to rule to grind everything to a halt. Or they could just flatly refuse to cooperate. In the American state of Georgia, uh, I believe it was last year, but I have no sense of time, so don't take my word for that. Uh, prisoners went on strike in that they, they just refused to leave their cells. Nothing got done. Nothing happened. But the Georgia prisoners were way ahead of the game compared to British prisoners, who I think are a, this is an awful, awful 
generation of prisoners, not polit politically motivated in any way, shape, or form. But that's my personal beef. But the Georgia prisoners used their illegal mobile phones to organize across the state. That's how they managed to do it. That's how they managed to get around being isolated. They used their illegal mobile. Now, the prison service normally catches around 10,000 mobiles and SIMs each year, which gives you a clue to how many mobiles there are in prison. Uh, I managed to hound to mine for four years. Um, so let's just say they catch 50%. That's 10,000 mobiles still floating around the prison estate. Why aren't prisoners plotting and scheming across the estate with each other? They're not. They're talking to their families, trying to arrange the next drug drop, or watching porn, or putting stupid pictures on Facebook, which really bugs me. Uh, why not? <laughs> if you've got a good phone, use the propaganda. Use the new media. Why is it, you know, you have a rooftop protest, they'll try and keep the media away. The media may not even know it's happening. If you take your phone up, you can film the prison staff trying to climb up and kick you off. You can hold interviews with the media. You can lay out a, sense, a, a list of sensible, coherent grievances. The prison service is crap at media, by the way. Um, really bad. When me and my partner Alex started my blog in 2009, they tried to shut me down instantly by banning all communication with me or from me. Um, in and out of the prison, which is just so illegal, I don't even know where to begin with it. Uh, they caved in. They caved in, I think it took about 36 hours, uh, because the Guardian picked it up, and then it went a bit viral on the net, because there's one thing the internet doesn't like, is censorship. Um, and anyway, that led to five, six, seven years later, here I am standing here talking to you lot, by shaping people's perception of me to some extent. You only got my version of events on the blog, that's useful. I'm not saying I lie through my teeth. But you can tweak things. You can lead people in a certain direction. You can't lie because you will get caught. Uh, and you can't pretend you're something you're not. But if coherent, educated prisoners used this new technology, used the media, they could wage a massive propaganda war against the prison service at the same time as deploying all the tools of active nonviolence which are infinite. Literally, it goes from writing a letter to supergluing yourself to the Prime Minister's desk. The, the ways you can deploy active nonviolence are infinite. And in a system based on physical power, when someone's just sitting there and refusing to exchange punches with you, how do you deal with that? How can you deal with that? That was the question the British Empire faced and didn't come up with a any particularly good solution, apart from inflict more violence, which played into everybody's hands. The thing with active nonviolence, as opposed to violence, is that it's, it has its own limitations built in. I can almost read some of your minds. Right, right, hang on, hang on, we want to give prisoners power. This is a bit iffy. But here's the thing. Active nonviolence works because of its moral force as much as anything else. Gandhi used to stand in the dock and say, no, no, forget your bail. No, 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 you bang me up. You brought me here, you bang me up. Because it was his moral victory. The morality in active nonviolence is you take your stand, you do your campaign, you break the law if you have to, but you take the punishment. 
that's the moral force of it. I believe this is right so much, I am willing to take the punishment for doing it because it needed to be done. So in that sense, it's self-limiting. You cannot be... You cannot deploy active nonviolence successfully without that moral base. So if you're worried about just prisoners getting crazy amounts of power, it can't. It is self-limiting. But it's powerful enough to grind the prison system to a halt. And that just levels the playing field. Then you can sit down and talk. It's not about victory. It's about just redressing an imbalance in power so that the 85,000 people actually have a voice and have something to say and an avenue in which they can say it. Let me give you... It's, it's a bit naughty, and I'm not suggesting anybody does this, but if you do, let me know. Uh, I, wrote, I wrote a blog post a couple of years ago called Sticky Students, uh, which I think is the best thing I ever wrote. Um, there was a... I think it was, it was a student protest in London. Uh, you, you lot were moaning about your fees, I think. Uh, not you lot, your previous generation. Uh, and Prince Charles and Camilla were driving through, coming back from the theatre. And uh, these guys, th- these protesters stormed the car. And someone prodded Camilla with a stick. <laughs> Funny though it is, when it comes in PR terms, what was across the media? Nutters attacking Prince Charles's car. Nothing about, nothing about the genuine issue of, of student debt and student fees. It was the dumbest thing anybody could do. And my, the blog post I wrote was in response to that. Taking them to task, saying, da, 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 that was a wasted opportunity, shame on you, active non-violence. And the thing that struck me, as to be said, I was smoking a fair amount of cannabis at the time, so it may, it may have made sense then, but not now. I'll, I'll try it out on you. Superglue. Students and superglue. You can shut down London with a couple of dozen volunteers and, and a couple of tubes of superglue. You've just got to hike across the wire onto, onto Heathrow's runway and just superglue yourself to the runway. <laughs> Seriously. What would be the chaos that would result from that? Or half a dozen of you superglued across the M25. Can you imagine the chaos? Or if people have an issue with the police, then literally just start gluing yourselves to police cars. Walk up to coppers in the street, superglued. Go see your MP, shake his hand, super glue. <laughs> the chaos you could actually cause is my. I seriously, give me, give me a box of super glue and half a dozen of you lot, and I could shut down London tomorrow. You could do that if prisoners, and remember, there are hundreds of thousands of people whose relatives are in prison, if you see what I mean, uh, outside who have a vested interest in their prisoner. What happens if people started gluing themselves to prison gates? It just can't open. There's like half a dozen prisons in London all feeding the courts massively, day in, day out, day in, day out. Hundreds of people, thousands of people whizzing around the cities, in and out of prison gates. All it takes is one dear old prisoner's grandmother and a bit of super glue that's it. Wormwood Scrubs isn't opening for business today. At the same time, the kitchen workers aren't turning up because they've all got a jippy tummy. Oh, and by the way, Governor, you've got 300 people making applications to give someone a newspaper. <laughs> uh, 
you can see how much chaos can actually be generated. And these aren't particularly, I say, they're not particularly serious offences. I suspect if you glued yourself on the runway at Heathrow, I'm not sure what the offence is, but I'm fairly sure they'd, they'd come down on you fairly heavy. But there's the moral power. Yes, I did it. Yes, I'll take my lumps, because what I was fighting for was that important. That's the moral force of it. Oh, that's the end of my notes. That's what happens when you rewrite a speech at two in the morning. So my contention is that it essentially no barriers against rogue regimes, rogue staff, populist ministers. Prisoners are vulnerable today like they have never been before. The law is being withdrawn from them. And it was always, it was an essential case. Raymond V. Honey, if I recall, you know, essentially the law does not stop at the prison gates. And officially it doesn't. If you've got enough money, you can still sue for whatever it is the prison service has done to you. But you won't get legal aid for it. Um, which effectively renders, if you can't enforce a right, you don't have it. So it's meaningless. Politicians are just going to keep going crazy because that's what they do. Uh, and we vote them to do it. And reform through riot is no longer possible. I say active non-violence is the way within prisons and out of prisons. I hope I gave you just a small glimpse that with a bit of creative thinking and superglue, you can actually have one hell of an impact against the power structure you're struggling against because it will try and squash you, but you're not fighting it. You're ducking and diving. This is the equivalent of a prisoner in a cell covering himself in butter so that the screws come in and can't bloody get hold of him. You know, it's hugely powerful. That man showed us that. The fall of the Eastern European communist states showed us that. Most of them were nonviolent revolutions, and they all had nonviolent structures within their societies, sometimes whole alternative societies, just ignoring the state, beavering away. The power of active nonviolence is infinite. And I say, this is the only hope for penal reform, is for prisoners and their allies to break the prison system. Then we'll start to think about criminal justice coherently from a fresh start. Because I'll tell you now, I am absolutely certain, if we were just dropped from the sky today as mewling infants and sat down with a sheet of blank paper, we would not invent the criminal justice system we have. Victims aren't happy with it. Police aren't happy with it. Judges aren't happy with it. Criminals aren't happy with it. Victims aren't happy with it. To be able to create a system which is meant to address social wrongs, which costs billions every year, has a failure rate of 60%, and nobody likes, this is a height of human stupidity. We can do better. We should do better. We need to do better. And I say prisoners can lead the way. And that, folks, is it.
This is a recording from the University of Leicester. For more information, please visit le.ac.uk.